Our next speaker is, again, someone you met earlier uh, participating on the panel, and uh, this is uh, Dr. Ken Sherman. Um, Ken is a uh, bona fide card-carrying hepatologist who uses the right size needle when he does liver biopsies. Um, he's, a, yeah, he's a wonderful um, uh, lecturer and teacher, and I've learned a lot from him over the last several years as I've delved more into hepatitis C. And he's going to uh, talk to us about some of the adverse effects, as we build earlier, uh, that uh, and the complications to the treatment of HCV. Kent. Thank you, Mike. So this is meant to be a sort of nuts and bolts practical approach to thinking about many of the problems that we encounter. Uh, some of these came up in the case discussions that we've already had. Uh, I'll uh, share some data on, on some of the studies that were referred to as well. Just put up a few disclosures and then... So, again, I want to remind everyone where we're at in treatment and how we think about a patient that comes in. Uh, patient comes in and we confirm that hepatitis C is present, make sure we know the viral load and the genotype. We evaluate the histology, um, and uh, we are doing that primarily to determine whether cirrhosis is present or advanced fibrosis is present. Uh, though sometimes there are surprises that show up that you didn't anticipate uh, on that biopsy, ranging from nonspecific granulomas to presence of infiltrating processes like amyloid. Um, so a biopsy is used in many ways other than simply the, the direct staging of the amount of fibrosis that's present. We evaluate the contraindications to treatment, and, and some of those contraindications are what I will be talking about as we go forward. Uh, we determine is the patient genotype one or four, and then is, or is it alternatively two, three? For two threes today, we still use PEG interferon and ribavirin, and uh, the dose of ribavirin is lower. The treatment is only for 24 weeks, and that yields a 70 to 85% SVR rate. With the DAAs in genotype 1, we, uh, we treat using a response-guided therapy, as you've heard about several times today. We use futility decision points to decide whether we need to stop early. And we end up, at the end of this, with patients who get either roughly a half a year or roughly a year of therapy with 65 to 75% SVR rates, giving us a pooled SVR of 70 to 80%. Not bad. Clearly, we can still do better. And uh, in the real world, those responses are not as good as what we see in the clinical trials. So let's start with a case. A 45-year-old woman has chronic hepatitis C infection. Her risk factors include a short period of injection drug use uh, when she was age 20 to 21. Uh, she is HCV genotype 1B and has a high viral load. 
She was diagnosed with depression as a teenager, was actually hospitalized uh, following a suicide attempt with uh, diphenhydramine or Benadryl uh, after her boyfriend dumped her. Um, she's had no significant depression since and says that she does not feel depressed now and she's not on any other medications. So you can take out your little beepers and uh, decide what you're going to do. Are we set up to do that? So you're going to inform the patient to get clearance from a psychiatrist before proceeding further with evaluation and treatment, start SSRIs and see the patient back in three months so you can assess the effect, inform the patient that current treatment modalities that include interferon may not be suitable for her because of her history of depression, or continue the workup and initiate treatment. So go ahead and vote. Okay, so about half of you are going to continue and the other half wants some reassurance from a psychiatrist before proceeding further. Uh, a few of you would uh, preemptively initiate uh, an antidepressant. And a couple of you are scared off by that history and wouldn't treat at all. So that's something that we're gonna need to talk about to figure out what might be the right answer here. So what issues actually limit the implementation of treatment? And, and in thinking about this, or the, the, not just implementation, but getting through a course of treatment, and there could be many, many things that intervene once you're into treatment, but I think that these are the biggies. And I'm gonna start with inexperience, and inexperience really means lack of confidence in proceeding and, and getting underway. Uh, psychiatric complications are an issue. Uh, the uh, anemia, neutropenia, and thrombocytopenia are all important. Uh, dermatologic events you've heard a little bit about. Uh, issues of weight loss, and I'm not gonna talk about drug interactions. You just heard a marvelous lecture about that but it's important to know that, that you need to look at medications that your patients are on and, uh, and things that you add on during the course of treatment that in the past we didn't even think about before the use of this first generation of protease inhibitors. So a little bit of data about treatment discontinuation and some of my observations. This was a study where there was a 44% discontinuation rate for PEG interferon and ribavirin that were reported during the course of therapy. Um, the majority of them were physician discontinuations. And in this review of a medical record, there was absolutely no explanation of why they were stopped in 40%. Though, if one looked, you could see that rapidly dropping platelets or hemoglobin or simply the patient calling up at about four weeks and saying, I don't feel good, 
was sufficient for the treating physician to say, you know what, you can't tolerate this, you're done. Um, so that's, that's a problem. A, a few of these were for actual futility, which is probably reasonable. Only comorbidities were cited in 5% and adherence was cited in 5%. And among the patients, uh, the discontinuation cited, there were several reasons, but, but certainly side effects was one of them. And another one was that, uh, that they got the sense from their physician that they didn't want them to do it anymore, but then they were encouraged to stop. And my experience over 20 years now of doing this is that, that when clinicians are not experienced and not confident, they bail out early. They say, oh my gosh, I can't do this. A survey we did about five years ago in the Cincinnati metropolitan area, uh, which is a population of about two and a half million people, um, showed that, that less than 50% of people completed what would be a course of therapy to even a decision point. So People are bailing out, people meaning healthcare providers. And again, if we're going to be effective going forward with management and effective therapy, we're going to have to get over that. We're going to have to not be scared to start, not be put off by some of the, the fearsome contraindications that it looks like you have when you read the product insert. And then we need to learn how to manage the common things in an efficient and uh, effective manner. So psychiatric complications. Depression is the most common thing we deal with, though not infrequently. Uh, we see patients with bipolar disorders and occasionally with schizophrenia. Mild to moderate depression is extremely common in the setting of hep C, certainly present in over 50% in some series, over 80% of patients. And I want to tell you today that, that most mild and moderate depression is easily managed by the treater. You don't need a psychiatrist. You don't need clearance. You don't need permission you make a clinical decision and go forward and treat that patient appropriately, including managing their depression. Now, how did we come to this? Well, we didn't have psychiatrists. In Cincinnati, there's a shortage of psychiatrists. And uh, to get a patient in, other than one that's willing to put cash on the table for a visit, is almost impossible. The, the roles and rosters of the psychiatrists throughout the region are absolutely filled with people who go and tell their problems and have nothing wrong with them, but, but our patients cannot get in. So what do you need to know if you're going to take this on? Well, first, there's little evidence to support preemptive therapy in all patients. You don't simply say, oh, every patient who who needs interferon needs an antidepressant. That's not true. The majority probably don't. For patients that are actively depressed, you may need to treat them. And again, that's a decision you're going to have to make and by spending time with the patient. I'm not saying you need to become a psychoanalytic counselor. 
many times the reasons why a patient is depressed aren't that important. What's important is, is this manageable in the context of the therapy that you're going to provide? I think that a treater should learn to use two or three antidepressants, learn their side effects, learn who they use them in and why. And so with apologies to, to anyone who is trained in psychiatry or who has, uh, has uh, someone close to them that's a psychiatrist, I'm going to give you the Sherman quick, what you need to know about the use of these drugs. And it goes like this. If it's a woman who cries, she needs Zoloft or Sertraline. <laughs> if it's a man who is angry or irritable, he needs Paxil, which will calm him down. Initially, there is a side effect you need to know about. Five to 10% will not be able to ejaculate. And they get very upset about that. They come back first happy, like, whoa, I'm a man, because, because I can go for three hours straight. Their, their spouses don't come in very happy. But, uh, but after a while, they get tired of this, and usually around week 12 to 20, they want to quit and then you have to come up with an alternative regimen. Um, however, it usually does calm them down and, uh, and does take the edge off of those. I mean, I've had patients chase their partners around with a meat cleaver, so uh, we've certainly seen the full spectrum of, uh, of bad behaviors that were all blamed on interferon. Um, Remeron, uh, the mirtazapine is very useful, and I'll mention again in the context of weight loss. Um, patients that are losing weight just want to eat like crazy on that one, and uh, so I kind of reserve that for those patients. Now, your list doesn't have to be these three, but you need to find three that you really feel comfortable with using. I will note that, that if you go to that Liverpool site, that you just heard about, that uh, all of these drugs have at least possible interactions with both telaprevir and bosepravir, and you need to start at the lowest possible doses that could be therapeutic because their levels are likely to be somewhat elevated above that, which is great. In most cases, that just makes it more effective. Um, now, more severe depression may require the assistance from the psychiatrist, and for that, I mean, who is that? that are, those are patients that, that are just acutely suicidal. They're thinking about, about already, where can I get a gun, how many pills can I take, and those are not the patients that you're ready to treat. Those, you need to make the phone call and say, I need help, and... Uh, not just I need help, will you clear the patient, but will you follow this patient with me through the course of their therapy? So often we delay treatment in those patients until that is covered. But again, we're not looking for blessing, we're looking for a partnership so that someone can help us. The bipolar and schizophrenic patients, psychiatric expertise is usually needed with these patients prior to the initiation of therapy and and the patient needs to make a commitment to see that person. Um, a lot of times, these patients don't want to see that physician because they like it when they fall off the edge. 
they feel happier at those times. And uh, so you really, really have to push it. And I actually do contracts with some of these patients to ensure that they will uh, uh, stay with their psychiatric follow-up. You want to treat bipolar patients when they're hypomanic. When, when they come in talking like this and they're really fast and say, Doc, am I going to be okay? Do you think I'm going to be okay? That's not the time to treat them. Don't touch that patient. The delusional patients, the ones that are talking and hearing voices and responding to them, they're not ready to be treated either. I have tried that even with the help of a psychiatrist, and I have never gotten someone through six weeks of continuous therapy. And with these drugs, you don't want to burn bridges. You don't want to start therapy just to see how it goes. You want to feel pretty confident, at least on the front end, that you're going to get them through the course that you plan for that patient. So when you need help, you have to ask for help. There are limited studies of those types of patients, and actually they have pretty good results. This was a study of 22 patients compared to 17 controls. They were treated with peg interferon and ribavirin in an interdisciplinary setting which meant that, that someone in psychiatry was working hand-in-hand -hand during the course of treatment with the treater, and the results were virtually the same. So schizophrenic, bipolar patients can get through therapy, at least in this and a couple of other small series that have been described. But it's not easy. Okay, back to our case. So... We did not send this patient to a psychiatrist. We uh, said, "Let's. you seem fine. Let's get started with treatment. Treatment was initiated with a DAA, peg interferon, and weight-based ribavirin. Uh, the baseline hemoglobin was 12.2. You get six weeks in, the patient was six weeks in, and reported that she felt very, very tired. So routine labs were obtained. Her ALT was normal, her AST was normal, her hemoglobin was down to 9.3, her platelets were 104,000, her white count was 3.2 with an absolute neutrophil count of 678, and her viral load, which at week six we had from week four, uh, was now undetectable. So this patient was doing okay, except for the symptoms. So you would now DC all treatment because she clearly can't tolerate it. Her counts have dropped quite a bit. Get a hematology consult and consider a bone marrow biopsy. Start EPO. Reduce the dose of ribavirin, or alternatively, reduce the dose of ribavirin and PEG interferon, or reduce the dose of the DAA. So let's vote. jazzy interlude. Okay, so most of you would reduce the dose of ribavirin. I, I think that is the right answer, and we'll look at some data on that. Um, a few of you would start EPO. Uh, the patient is below 10. That might be appropriate as well. Um, some of you would reduce the dose of ribavirin and PEG interferon, uh, again, not an unreasonable approach. Uh, 
I'm not sure we're quite ready to jump on the peg interferon, but if someone did that, I wouldn't say that they were totally wrong. So let's talk about anemia, neutropenia, and thrombocytopenia. These are data from the uh, combined advance and illuminate trials, uh, the phase three trials in treatment-naive patients for telaprevir. Uh, and you could see that uh, anemia was, uh, was much more common in the patients treated with the DAA versus those that got a placebo DAA and just peg interferon and ribavirin. So anemia, clearly an issue. In the Bosuprevir, the SPRINT-2 phase three trial, again, anemia was quite prevalent compared to the control group had 29% and both active treatment arms with 49% anemia. In the Telaprevir trials, no erythrocyte-stimulating agents were used, so no EPO in those studies, and, and the patients were managed with ribavirin dose adjustment. In the Bosuprevir phase three trial, EPO was used. Uh, you could see that, uh, that there were many people who discontinued due to anemia, but there was a fair amount of both dose reduction and the use of EPO, uh, about 25% in the control arm, but 43% uh, in each of the active drug arms. So, so the use of, of EPO was quite common in uh, that study. Now, to determine whether that was the right way to go, uh, a study was recently completed, which was presented at EASL this year, and uh, Mike Sag referred to it earlier. It was a randomized trial. Patients randomized one-to-one -one when hemoglobin fell below 10 or was suspected to fall below 10. And by that, I mean that serial hematocrits showed dropping, such rapid drop that, that it didn't take a rocket scientist to say, oh, we're going to be below 10 like in a couple of days, so we might as well jump on things now. 500 patients were enrolled, and, and of those that were randomized, they were randomized to get EPO versus dose reduction. And then they reduced their ribavirin by 200 to 400 milligrams a day. The bottom line here, at the end of this, there was absolutely no difference in the SVR rates. The patients did well. So this told us that, uh, that the much less expensive and potentially safer strategy of dose reduction is a viable one that we should be going forward with as our certainly first-line approach to the management of these patients. For telaprevir, I already said that dose reduction was part of the trials, but uh, also at EASL was a composite presentation, a retrospective analysis of the major trials, looking at uh, what actually happened. And so there was groups that had no dose reduction. Uh, there were groups that were dropped a little bit to 800 to 1,000 milligrams, and those that went down to 600 
milligrams a day. And, uh, and again, it looked like there's almost no difference. Statistically, there's no difference in these. And uh, so the takeaway message is dose reduction, again, is okay and doesn't compromise our treatment. And you can go all the way down to 600 at the time when you determine that anemia is a problem and be fine. You will not sacrifice SVR to do that. So I think that that is now our first-line approach to the management of anemia in the setting of the use of DAAs. Neutropenia. Neutropenia is common, and the sample patient that I was describing to you had, had some neutropenia. Uh, she was in the 600s, though, for her absolute neutrophil count. It's commonly seen. It's thought to be primarily due to the PEG interferon. Um, there is both anecdotal, considerable anecdotal evidence, and some analyses of studies that suggests there is no increased risk of infection when the ANC is, uh, is even less than 500. Is there some magic cutoff? There probably is, but no one has yet described it in the context of these treatments, and certainly no one has described any problems taking patients to 500. So despite what it says in the, in the product insert, Practical management suggests that you can get away with going lower. When it does fall low, we manage with, uh, with the use of a stimulating agent. Um, and I typically don't do that until we're below 500. Um, before doing PEG interferon dose reduction, which is the next step in the management, because we want to keep that PEG interferon dose up if we're able to. Thrombocytopenia. This has got to be the biggest reason why, in my community, docs stop therapy. The numbers plummet in some patients, and, and at six weeks, eight weeks into therapy, they just say, you can't tolerate this, you're done. They bail out. So it turns out that it appears there are no significant concerns in most patients until platelet count is less than 30,000. Uh, and when they get uh, to the 20 to 30,000 range, you manage that with PEG interferon dose reductions. Now, if you didn't have significant anemia, you don't want to mess with your ribavirin in this setting because ribavirin actually raises the platelet count. So don't mess with the ribavirin if you can avoid it. Often those things are going together and you can't do a thing about it, but... Uh, but otherwise, it's, it's the PEG interferon that's doing this. There is a medication, a growth factor for platelets, L-trombopag. It is not widely used. It is very expensive. It is sometimes hard to get from insurers. But if further dose reduction is not feasible and the patient is otherwise doing well, you could consider, if you're in that 20 to 30,000 range, the addition of this agent. In general, uh, most patients, when they fall below 20,000, should probably be discontinued. They certainly should be discouraged from riding motorcycles and uh, climbing on towers. Um, the one caveat I want to mention is 
the hemophilic patient. So everything I just told you is not true for the hemophilic patient who has a, a inherent clotting disorder. Those patients, uh, the hematologists I know that manage these patients start to get a little antsy when platelets get below 50 and intervention at that point of some sort or some combination of interventions is definitely needed at that stage. Now, there was a very nice study uh, that was published in the New England Journal that asked the question, for patients that start with low platelet counts, can we bump them up prior to therapy and then maintain them during a course of therapy? And the answer was, yes, you could. Um, that uh, all of these patients started low. They got different doses of L-trombopag. The interferon therapy was started and the counts dropped, but they stayed at a reasonable level uh, around uh, 100,000 throughout the course of therapy. There is tremendous cost to doing that. The drug is not approved to do that. I think the more important message is that you can use this in the setting of PEG interferon as an adjunctive therapy when you need to. Okay, back to our case. Our patient is now at week seven. We got through the last week's anemia and started to manage it. Um, and uh, we are using telaprovir, peg interferon, and ribavirin. She reports by phone that she just developed an itchy rash on her arms, chest, and back. And she denies any fever, chills, or oral mucosal involvement because we asked her those questions. You have to ask them those questions. So, back to your clickers. You now instruct the patient to stop all treatment, come in for an evaluation, request a photo be sent of the rash, tell her not to be concerned because this is common, or call your lawyer. Boy, Mike gets all the good music during his... Uh... Okay, so most of you would ask the patient to come in for an evaluation. Um, and uh, I think that that is perfectly reasonable. Um, though I will tell you that, that my practice over the last year has been actually to request a photo. Almost everyone carries a phone and I ask them, right now, as we're talking, I want you to send me pictures. And I ask them for pictures of the skin lesions, and also I want them to photograph their, their mouth and lips and uh, so that I could look at them. And that will tell me whether I need to have them come in, like, now or you know, let's try this and see where we're at in two or three days. Um, it's not wrong to ask them to come in now, but many of us, it's not, and for both us and the patients, it's not that easy to really have a now. And uh, so you have to figure out how do you manage this patient in the best possible way. So let's talk a little bit about dermatologic issues. So first, all three drugs used for treatment 
uh, meaning peg interferon, ribavirin, and telaprevir can cause rash. Rash has not been an issue with bosaprevir. The pegylated interferons cause a dermatitis. They cause local reactions, sometimes quite severe and luckily quite rare. But if you have a patient who has an ulcer, a depression at an injection site, you need to stop therapy. That is a non-healable lesion and will actually widen and deepen over time. It's a very rare finding. Uh, and unfortunately, I reported the first case ever of this way back in the 90s when we didn't know what to do with it, and the patient uh, ultimately required skin grafts. So you need to, if you see that, it will not heal as long as you keep interferon uh, going. Be aware of that. The other one that people sometimes forget about is an exacerbation of psoriasis. Interferon really, really makes psoriasis. It's like, it's like psoriatic grow. It just makes little tiny patchy lesions on people on their wrists and elbows and hands uh, become huge things and sometimes covering their entire body. If you see that, you need to be aggressive with topical steroids. You need to work with your dermatologist. Light therapy sometimes helps. And in later points in the disease, uh, we've been successful with use of depot steroids, but you don't want to do that early on in the treatment. The ribavirin typically causes a drug eruption as well. Uh, often a an eruption that occurs between week 6 and about 16 to 20. could appear any time in there. Um, certainly overlaps with our telaprevir rashes, which are the ones that we are most worried about. The telaprevir rashes, we'll talk about some more and, and some of the terminology. So this is the summary of RASH data from the placebo-controlled uh, phase two and phase three trials. Um, RASH was clearly more common than in the control arms. And if one looks at the distribution of RASH, the majority was mild or moderate. Uh, there was a small percentage of severe RASH. These are eczematous reactions, uh, uh, typically pruitic. Um, usually involving uh, less than 30% of the body surface area. 50% um, started in the first four weeks, but a rash can occur at any time during telaprevir treatment. Now, the grading of the skin eruptions is important. A mild eruption is a localized skin eruption that uh, has a limited distribution in separate isolated sites on the body. A moderate one is diffuse rash that involves less than 50% of the body surface area. And one of the things that was learned in the telaprevir trials was that even experienced clinicians when seeing a rash always overestimated the amount of body surface area that was involved. When the dermatologist got their hands on those patients and did all their analyses and pictures and area covered, it was almost invariably less in any given patient. 
Severe rashes are those that cover greater than 50% of the body surface area and are associated with significant systemic symptoms, including mucos, mucous membrane ulcerations that are not the little herpetic ditzels that uh, Marion managed, target lesions and, and epidermal detachment. And then there's SCAR, which is, is a, a severe cutaneous adverse reaction. Uh, generalized bullous eruptions, the dress syndrome. If you haven't heard that word, you need to know that word. It's drug rash with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. And the systemic symptoms are usually fever uh, and increased liver enzymes, even though your patient is virus negative. Um, and, and the eosinophilia is associated often with the, the severe level lesions, uh, the target lesions, mucosal ulcerations. Uh, there could also be Stevens-Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, uh, an acute generalized exanthematous uh, postulosis, and erythema multiforme. Those are all very, very serious lesions. So here are some examples, mild rash, this is localized in this patient up in this area of his body, and that's it. This is a patient that has moderate, a little bit more generalized. This patient has a more severe and confluent rash. It's also on his back and on his legs. Um, and then the most severe type, uh, this is a patient of mine who did develop dress syndrome. Um, his skin is peeling off in layers. Uh, he had oral lesions in his mouth with large blisters. His lips were swollen to three times the size. Uh, he had a very high eosinophil count. At one point, I think he had 27% eosinophils. Um, and uh, this is a major problem that requires immediate hospitalization, as you heard from, from Marion previously. So the management, mild rash, conservative management with topical steroids. Uh, most patients respond well. Moderate rash without mucosal involvement. Uh, you could stop telaprevir, especially if you're greater than eight weeks out. Certainly by seven to eight weeks, it's perfectly reasonable and appropriate to stop telaprevir. There's very little, if any, loss of efficacy at that point and continue the peg interferon and ribavirin. If you think it could be a ribavirin rash, hold that drug for one to two weeks and then restart at a lower dose. And for severe rash and for scar, stop the treatment. You are not gonna drive them through that period. You will make them worse, you might kill them. We'll finish in the last minute with uh, a few comments about weight loss. So weight loss is defined as greater than 10% of body weight and is generally considered serious. Uh, in my experience, this is most common in patients with HIV that uh, often start on a little bit on the skinny side. In Ohio, uh, patients clamor for this treatment because they can lose weight. And, uh, and I can't tell you how many patients have told me they lost 35 pounds while on peg interferon, and now they're four months out, they're cured of their hepatitis, 
but their weight's all back. In fact, they gained even more than when they started, and, uh, and now they're very upset. Uh, the primary management, if they're on the weight loss side, that they don't want is caloric supplementation, milkshakes, Ensure. Uh, I already mentioned the use of uh, the bertazepine. Remeron is very effective in weight gain and often one of my first-line things to get patients to uh, start eating. Again, that's particularly common in the patients with HIV co-infection. So in conclusion, the management of hep C treatment has become more, not less, complex. Our treatments have gotten better but not easier for us to administer. Specific management techniques are evolving as we learn more about safety and efficacy. The key data that we just learned about, uh, about dose reduction and ribavirin really was presented for the first time in April of this year, a year after the approval of these drugs. And we'll continue to learn more about new management issues. And we really, really hope that the next generation, generations, will be easier to provide management to patients. But, uh, you know, I'm sure that, that we will be dealing with new challenges for decades to come. Thank you. So I'll have Charlie come back up. I, I just realized now that uh, the former representative Anthony Weiner was probably one of your patients, and the picture that got out on the internet was him sending a groin rash to you. I think is what <laughs> just figured that out. Um, okay, poor guy. Don't tell anyone. Uh, no, I won't. It was a HIPAA violation. I'm so sorry. Uh, um, it is. It's better than what he came up with. Um, so wait for some questions to come up. Uh, Charlie, I think you addressed the question I had, which was on that last slide uh, from the colleague at Colorado, that when you sit there and you think about these drugs being CYP3A4 inhibitors, you know, why in the world would you get um, decreased doses, decreased levels when they're given? And I, I guess you've already answered the question to say you don't know. I think, that's, I, th I think that's the best answer, Mike. It's the honest answer. Uh, you can always make up stories about drug transporters, but the truth is there's no direct evidence for that with uh, combinations of uh, bosuprevir or tolaprevir and the HIV protease inhibitors. So right now we're, we're simply making decisions based on empiric data, results of these drug interaction studies. I, one thing I did not mention that I think I should for completeness, uh, there has been some discussion recently of the difference in outcomes of drug interaction studies done in healthy volunteers versus patients with liver disease. And I think that's a legitimate concern with these drugs. Um, there have been anecdotes that the uh, protease inhibitor concentrations in patients taking uh, bosuprevir plus uh, darunavir, lopinavir, or atazanavir, or actually the, the HIV protease inhibitor concentrations are changed very little, and that may explain why Mark Solkowski's study showed no clinical HIV treatment failure in those patients. But for right now, that's simply hearsay, and none of those data have been presented or published. And so I think that remains to be seen as a possible explanation for the difference between results of these drug interaction studies and results of the clinical trials in patients. Ken, was there any um, 
demographic or clinical features that could predict severity of rash, for example, race, gender, genotype, um, anything like that in any of the studies? No. Um, unfortunately not. There was, a, there was this wide supposition that the rash would be worse in, when we went to treat HIV patients uh, because they had exposed to so many things and were more susceptible to rashes, and actually there were less rashes. So uh, we don't have any good uh, markers to predict who will develop a rash and, and of what severity. Okay. Um, Charlie, two quick questions. One, any data on cobacistat and interactions with the direct acting agents? Uh, there's, there's no data yet. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't expect uh, cobacistat-boosted PIs to be any more or less susceptible to drug interactions with um, tolaprevir, bosepravir than ritonavir-boosted PIs, so I don't think that's going to solve the problem. Okay, and a follow-up on, I think, one of the slides you showed about clinical studies of methadone and HCV PI interactions. Uh, I'm not aware of any clinical studies, Mike. I, I would, um, you know, I, I think uh, probably it's worth doing uh, based on the results of these drug interaction studies. I wouldn't expect uh, big uh, uh, clinically significant interactions with tolaprevir or Okay. Thanks. Ken, any uh, advice, or hard and fast rules on when, how to distinguish between changing the dose, reducing dose of ribavirin versus stopping you? Kind of went over that, but maybe just to kind of articulate it one more time. So generally, if one is managing anemia, I think the new paradigm has come to drop the dose to 600 as your first management step from wherever you started on your weight-based uh, uh, dosing level. Um, if the anemia is quite severe after that, then uh, one management technique is to hold ribavirin for one to two weeks and then return to that level. Uh, which may let you catch up. Similarly, for our ribavirin-induced rash, uh, for reasons that I don't understand but uh, have seen many times, if you stop the drug for a couple of weeks and come back at a lower dose, the rash doesn't come back. Okay. Charlie, any uh, specific concerns about the additive effects of telaprevir or other PIs uh, on tenofovir exposure or drug-drug interactions there, especially with regard to renal toxicity? So uh, I think it's a concern. I'm not aware of any data yet, Mike, looking at telaprevir or bosepravir plus boosted PIs plus tenofovir, uh, but it's something that I would be worried about. I, I actually think, I think we need to be cautious using tenofovir with telaprevir, period, and if you added boosted PIs to that, I think it makes the concern even greater. Okay. Uh, Ken, um, when you have a more moderate rash and you end up uh, deciding to stop the telaprevir, for example, uh, would you restart it after you stop it and the rash improves? Say you stopped it at week six and now it's week eight, would you no. restart it? No, we're, we're done at that point. Uh, uh, the rash 
actually there's there's virtually no data on that that we can use to count on but but the effect of the ribavir or of the uh, tilaprovir is primarily in the early phases of decline and rapid drop in viral load and uh, by the time you're even out of week six uh, you've probably had enough to achieve a reasonable SVR rate. Um, this could be for either of you, but maybe I'll direct it to Charlie because it's a, um, the drug, it's a sort of drug complication question. But patients who are on the, uh, the medicine to increase platelets, um, uh, the thrombotic uh, agent, thro thank you, um, that drug, um, are you worried about things like portal vein thrombosis? Is that a common complication or things like that? I'm not aware of it being reported, and I'm, I would be willing to bet the FDA asked them to look for it, but I'm not aware that it's a side effect. Okay. There, there is some data on increased risk of thrombosis with that agent. Uh, and uh, Is it portal vein specifically? or is um, there were reports of portal vein yeah. thrombosis in patients with cirrhosis and sluggish flow. It's going to be hard to sort out, though, isn't it? Cause that's right, but that's actually something, as you heard Marion say, we screen yeah. for all the, time. all the time in those patients. Right. Um, coming back to you, Ken, how do you manage um, complaints of the anal rectal anal itching? Yeah, so, so a percentage of patients experience uh, an anorectal burning, itching that people initially described as hemorrhoids, and my hemorrhoids are killing me. Um, interestingly, there seems to be some variation. This was not reported that much in the trials. As the drug was approved, certain sites reported it very frequently. Um, I haven't seen any analysis of who is most at risk, though. My general sense, and I'd love to hear Dave Thomas's impression later, but, uh, but I think that it's mostly young men that seem to complain of this. In, in any case, uh, it's, a, it's a, another cutaneous manifestation of uh, a skin reaction with this drug, and it can be treated with Anusol HC. Uh, which is just like giving topical steroids, but in your butt. Okay. Well, we've run out of time for questions, but thanks very much for a great talk. And so we're going to move on to the panel so you guys can sort of hang around. But thank you very much.